Looking for a bank with convenience of online features and account loan balances along with transferring between accounts and bill pay without having to sacrifice the hometown, personal call-you-by-your-first-name kind of service? Then look no further than the Commercial Bank of Grayson. Not only are they helping to make this episode possible, but they've been a critical part of my family's life since I was 16 years old. You can find them online at cbgrayson.com or call them at 606-474-7811. Since 1891, the Commercial Bank of Grayson, member FDIC, an equal housing lender. In 1639, the Prague citizen Georgius Barcius wrote a letter to the Jesuit Athenaeus Kircher in Rome. He explained that he owned a mysterious book that was written in an unknown script and that was profusely illustrated with pictures of plants, stars, and chemical secrets. He could not read the text and he hoped that Kircher would be able to translate this book for him. As far as we can tell, Kircher did not succeed in this. This book later passed through various hands and it ended up at the rare book and manuscript library of Yale University. It is a medieval handwritten book of almost 250 pages, and even today the text cannot be understood. It has become quite famous and is recognized as one of the main unsolved problems in the history of literature. While no one has been able to find an explanation for the text, the manuscript just seems to be waiting for someone to achieve this. In fact, there are plenty of people who believe that they have done this. Many new translations of parts of the manuscript, individual pages, or even individual words are proposed each year. The problem is, is that none of these is sufficiently convincing enough to be accepted. This book, which has baffled amateurs and scholars alike for over a hundred years. Welcome to the Voynich Manuscript. My name is Ben James. I'm your host here in the newly minted Mad Lab Studios. Uh, yes, this is the Mad Laboratory now. That is what it has been named. Um, and we are actually joined this evening. And we're, we're getting ready to head into an, an episode that is, I mean, we've done some King Solomon's Minds. We've talked Templars in, you know, not not specific episodes on Templars, but we've talked quite a bit. So we're not necessarily foreign to conspiracy, kind of mysterious type uh, episodes, but this one is going to be the most unusual, the most off of center episode that we've done yet. So I thought it would be fitting, only fitting, to have the absolute most off of center, uh, weirdest co-host with us for this episode. I am joined in the Mad Lab Studio. Who this is? This is a gentleman who coined the Mad Lab Studios moniker. He named it that for us, and it just has kind of stuck because I like it. If you are a longtime listener of the podcast, if you go way back all one year that we've been doing this, if you're one of the original faithful six listeners that we've had, you're going to recognize this voice whenever you hear it because before we replaced him, uh, he was the intro and outro guy for Beyond the Walls podcast. My friend, 
Mike Walker is in studio this evening. Michael, good to have you, buddy. Thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you. Just thank to you. let you, applause. just to let you know, he was clapping yeah, yeah, away yeah, from the yeah, microphone. Yes, yes, there is. yes uh, we did coin the the phrase, and actually, it has taken off. Actually, I've had several people reach out about the Mad Laboratory on on the Facebook videos that we've been doing. Uh, I serve as PR director for something else as well, and well, where where is that at? And I have to keep on saying, well, it's it's in the studio. I, I appreciate the wonderful intro. Hey, no problem. Uh, We're you know, the most off-center uh, person. But yes, if you are one of the original, actually one of the, I, I looked it up the other day, We uh, it was in a text or something, and the original download was, I think, 32, 32 listeners right out of the gate on the on the first. Yeah, yeah, we, we cracked, we come out of the gate hard, man, yeah. with 32. Yeah, but we doubled episode two and, and whatnot. So, yes, if you're one of the original six listeners, thanks a lot uh, for that. But, yes, I am the original voiceover, but you actually get to hear my real voice tonight. Yeah, yeah, and, and just, a, just a quick little thing to thank you guys. Um, you know, you heard at the beginning of this episode, you know, some sponsorship. You know, you'll hear in the middle of it that we've actually got two sponsors now, and we've actually got some more deals in the work. We're working out details of that for more. Uh, though, those are made possible by you guys listening to us. We started out the first episode 32 strong, and now we are anywhere. We're ranging, you know, we're, we're, we're tipping the scales at 20K listens wow. and downloads per episode you know now so uh guys just we thank you for that continue just to tell your friends put us out there on social media let uh, let people know about it. if you like what we do here let people know about it and even more importantly than that get onto your podcast provider the one thing that we do not have a whole lot of is reviews and ratings uh, the ones that we do have are very very positive we've been very fortunate in that but uh, but we could always use more because those help more than you know and if you don't like what we do here just just pass it on by no need for a review or a rating no no there's no need for negativity there, yeah. there, there, there really isn't uh, one thing we did add though and and i was very proud of this when this did happen i, I kind of put a feather it made me feel good was uh, spotify yeah yeah we are we are on spotify we're on iHeartRadio. if you're an iHeartRadio listener we have yeah. a channel there that uh, is available so any type of podcast platform Spotify, our heart radio. Um, we are on SoundCloud. So, I mean, just about anywhere that you could possibly find a podcast, uh, we're there. So just uh, just give us, you know, create a little bit of a buzz for us. We appreciate it. Now we can move on to this weird topic. Since we have a weird co-host, we've got a weird topic. And that topic is the Voynich Manuscript. If you listen to the Voynich Preview, we kind of condensed what's going to be two episodes into a 10-minute little overview there. So... If you haven't listened to that just yet, go ahead, hit the pause button, go back. It's 10 minutes, so, uh, you know, the average commute in America is 21 minutes long. So you can, this will be probably seven, eight minutes into the episode that you're listening to us now. You can go back, listen to that 10 minutes, and have a few minutes to spare and come back to this one all in one trip. Well, that's a fun statistic. I don't know, 21 minutes. 21 I, minutes. I, I wish my commute was that much. Mine is 17 Oh, I, mine's not. Yeah, yeah, you've got a little bit of driving, too. But anyhow. Just a little bit. Yeah. Anyhow, Voynich Manuscript. This is one of those those things that uh, either you you know about it or you don't. It doesn't. It, it's it's gaining a little bit of momentum, a little bit of popularity in, in our culture and people being aware of it. But this is generally just one of those things. I know that when you and I began to talk about it, it was you were like, what? The what? Or God bless you, you know, Kazoom type type thing. But uh, 
This is a, a text, it's a codex, it's something that has not been translated, and, and just to share a little bit of the conversation that, that Michael and I had whenever I was first telling him about this, he was like, ah, let me work on it for a little bit. I'll, I'll break it. I'll show you how it's done. Well, it, it's a simple, you got to find the keyword, you got to do this, you got to do that, and then we got to looking into it a little bit, and you got to doing some research on it, and you were like, eh, okay, well, maybe I can see where you're going with this here. Yeah. I had a, I had one of those little cra- uh, uh, decoder rings. I, w- I was going like, I brought, brought it out. I was like, yeah, I'm going to crack was this. Was you Ralphie in a Christmas story? I, 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 <laughs> drink more Ovaltine? <laughs> no. A crummy commercial? <laughs> no, 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 nothing like that. I actually got this from Sears and Roebuck. You know, that's, that's a shout-out oh, to our older listeners right yeah. there. Uh, for the ones who know that before Sears, it was Sears and Roebuck. Roebuck. And that's when you used to get a catalog. Yes. The Sears and Roebuck catalog. Yes. I, I remember getting this, uh, that in the JCPenney catalog every Christmas, and that's what I, I didn't have Toys R Us or online or anything. I had to go through the whole catalog and circle. And you, and you had to walk in school five it, miles it, both it, ways it, uphill. No, no. I, mine wasn't uphill both ways. You know, I, I only had to walk a mile. So, oh, okay. Well, yeah. that's good. You You don't know what it is to live life you don't know the struggle then okay no, so I'm not as old as you yeah that's a fact so to give a little bit of a, of a background and that's basically what this episode's going to be because this is a mystery that people have been this is a book this is a manuscript that people have been trying to decode and translate and figure out what in the world's going on with this thing for over a hundred years the first attempt at translating this book began in 1917 to give you a little time frame yes that's that that is 101 years since that began but to give you a little bit of a time frame just a little bit of context for this in 1917 world war one was still going on it didn't come to an end until 1918 so we're looking at a book at a manuscript here that people have been trying to figure this thing out for over 100 years and we're going to find out and and we alluded to it a little bit in the preview that some of the greatest code breakers i mean people who were in charge of military code breaking in the army in world war ii were tasked with this and that goes even beyond just the world war one but some of the top cryptologists has taken a crack at this and they're and they're sitting there scratching their brains and going i don't know what's going on here yeah exactly so we're going to look at a little bit of the history we're going to look at the origin we're going to give you a little bit of a you know a brief description we understand this is audio we're going to try to paint a picture as best we can as to what the book looks like and what what some of the illustrations and the text look like but another fortunate thing is with a lot of mysteries a lot of conspiracies a lot of history stuff you don't have a lot of physical evidence in front of you as far as that you can put in like show notes and stuff we are chalked full with images that we're going to be putting in the show notes so we're going to do our best to kind of describe this audio wise but we do have the benefit of just put these up there you're going to be able to click point click listen all at the same time and you're going to be able to see what we're talking about so that's that's a little bit of benefit and there's an entirety of a pdf of the voynich manuscript that you can download online there isn't actually downloaded and i was actually quite amazed of the the quality even how old this book is as we dive into it uh, which you're going to go into just here in a little bit, uh, but it was uh, the, the quality of it, yeah, and and how it's well preserved it is, yeah, it's amazing. Having said that, here's what we're going to go into. I want to start with a quote from Voynich himself. Now, in the preview, we cover this again. Voynich is never a word that you find in the manuscript. It is actually referencing the not the most recent owner, but the most famous owner of the manuscript back in 1912, Wilfred Voynich 
purchased the manuscript uh, out of a rare kind of a it, it was in a transitional period it was being sold and he kind of got into the collection found this one and you'll see here in a minute he kind of refers to it as an ugly duckling so a quote from Voynich in regards to the manuscript itself says quote in 1912 I came across a most remarkable collection of preciously illuminated manuscripts for many decades these volumes had lain buried in chest in which I found them in an ancient castle in southern Europe while examining the manuscripts with a view to the acquisition of at least part of the collection, my attention was especially drawn by one volume. It was such an ugly duckling compared, to, compared with other manuscripts, with their rich decorations in gold and colors, that my interest was aroused at once. I found that it was written entirely in cipher. Even a necessarily brief examination of the vellum upon which it was written, the calligraphy, the drawings, and the pigments, suggested to me as the date of its origin the latter part of the 13th century. The drawings indicated it to be an encyclopedic work on natural philosophy. The fact that this was a 13th century manuscript in cipher convinced me that it must be a work of exceptional importance. And to my knowledge, the existence of a manuscript of such an early date written entirely in cipher was unknown, so I included it among the manuscripts which I had purchased from this collection. Two problems presented themselves. One, the text must be unraveled and the history of the manuscript must be traced. It was not until some time after the manuscript came into my hands that I read the document bearing the date of 1665, which was attached to the front cover. This document, which is a letter from Marcus Marcy, to Athanasius Kircher, making a gift of the manuscript to him, is of great significance." End quote. So let's dive into the history of the Voynich Manuscript here just a little bit. The first account of the Voynich Manuscript that we would consider a modern-day account of it was actually when Voynich himself presented it in 1929 and again this was nine years after his acquisition of it because he acquired it in 1912 but nine years later he made a presentation on it in front of the College of Physicians in Philadelphia now it was subsequently after he made this presentation it was published in their proceedings and in his research of the history, this is Voynich's research of the history, during that nine-year period, he, he came to two conclusions during this window. Number one, that a letter within the manuscript, not necessarily the manuscript itself, but a letter within the manuscript was written in 1665 by the Prague scientist Marcus Marcy. In this letter, Marcy presents the book to the Jesuit Athanasius Kircher in Rome, and according to this letter, the manuscript once was owned by Rudolf II. Now that's, that's significant, and we'll get to that significance later. But the second thing that he had come to was that the initial date of the 1665 that he found on the inside cover was not accurate to the actual dating of the manuscript. It was just a letter that had been included in the manuscript. So carbon dating, let's talk a little bit about carbon dating to go ahead and let's establish a date for when this was written because there was all kinds of speculation going on. And this, this carbon dating led us to basically the time period of 1408 to 1448. Actually, 
as I was looking it up, we can actually narrow that down a little bit. According to McCrone Associates in Westmont, Illinois, mm-hmm. they've actually narrowed that down between 1404 and 1438. So okay. each each period, as 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 technology grows, whatnot, we're starting to see smaller time frames of now that this is still happening. But either which way, we're still looking at the early 1400s that this manuscript was was starting to be formed, that it was starting to be written. Mm-hmm. Awesome. And a little bit of a timeline here, um, because there is a little bit where they can actually track the authorship, and well, not the authorship, but the ownership of the manuscript um, obviously, you know, it was written in that window. What did you say? 14... 1404 to 1438. Okay, awesome. All the way up until about 1600, they have no clue. So you're looking at maybe close to 200 years that they don't even... And then they can just lock down the location of it from there. In 1600 to 1665, they've got it ranging in the area of Bohemia, uh, which is interesting because there's... It's a little bit advanced, you know, mm-hmm. a little bit past Martin Luther and some of the Reformation stuff we've been talking about in previous episodes. Right. But a lot of it happened in Bohemia. John Huss, in particular, who is one of the forerunners of uh, Martin Luther. So there are a lot of theories out there. And, and again, this is not a theories episode, but there are a lot of theories out there that this book is tied into the Reformation, that there are a lot of the reformers of the time in Bohemia, in this general area, because this whole time period, this 1400 to 1600 area, um, that is the time that the Reformation was really hitting its stride. And it is. Uh, that's one of the things uh, also about it is in that 200 period, that 200 year time frame, look, look what has occurred and look where this is coming out of in that time frame. You know, going back to previous episodes, like you were talking to Martin Luther and whatnot. So now that this is starting to rise up out of this time frame, this is just starting to put everything in perspective again. Mm-hmm. But the yet again, the the emperor at the time in in the letters of the 1600. You know, that's just kind of that's just giving a small time frame. Mm-hmm. You know, thank goodness for carbon dating, but you know, you still got that 200 your window added taken away things like that yeah so and, and speaking to the authenticity because there's a you know there's so many different theories that's ranging you know as far as the author of it you know some people believe that it may have been a monk who had written this who may have had a little too much to drink some people believe that it may indeed have been a monk but maybe a, a monk that was autistic you know, they didn't diagnose that back then, but they were thinking that maybe, you know, that's there was high-functioning autism that was taking place here. Uh, some of it, act, you know, some people believe it to be an actual legitimate work within the Reformation, that this was a code that people within the Reformation used. And then there's some people who believe that it's just just a hoax, just just, an, just a hoax. Well, when you actually look into it, and, and when you look at the, the, the photos that are going to be put on the, the show notes— you can definitely see this. I, I I hate to yet again conspiracy theories, theories, whatnot, but I really don't believe that this was a hoax, for the pure and simple fact that look at the structure of it. Uh, you know everything was was 
bound together. You know, you have your sections that were were in sections, and, and we'll dive into that just here in a little bit once we go through the history of it. But when, when you actually look at it and you go, uh, wow, you know, this is, and, and you and I joked uh, before the show, uh, maybe he did have a little bit too much to drink, but, you know, I, I've never seen somebody that had too much to drink right that well. So Right, exactly. Uh, 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 just just putting that out there not that i know or anything that's that, that well and you know the fact of if you're looking at it as a hoax which not none of the theories up until this point can be substantiated right. nor can they be disqualified either just right. because we don't know but if you're looking at it from the from an angle that this is a hoax i'm just convinced that this is a hoax this may be the most elaborate intentional hoax in the history of mankind just because you know we, we threw out the carbon dating everything that has been tested which has been you know tests have gone you know 2009 2014 2016 there's been all kinds of tests and every test that's done all of it have come back to that same time period i mean even as they are looking at the parchment right. that's used that's when it's dated to the the gall ink that it dates back to that the you know the, the inks um, not necessarily the the iron gall ink but the the color ink and everything goes back to that same time period and the the one of the most fascinating parts to me is that there are no corrections to this I mean this is one continuous work and it's not you know you and I could sit down and and be as intentional as what we wanted to be with trying to write something and at some point we're going to make a mistake right this was done so intentionally that there's there's no redos there's no hey let's blot this out and go back over it no which lends credibility to both ends of the spectrum actually is like okay well that just proves it's a hoax because you really don't care what's going on there and there is no actual quote-unquote mistakes or this is of such a high level of importance that they took that much time Yes, and, I, and I'm going to lay on the side of, of, of caution to say that this was not a hoax because, yet again, going back to what I was saying just a few minutes ago, look at the structure. Look at the structure of it. You know, it, yet again, like you were saying, if you if you take a step back and if it was you and I working on it, you would start to see some form of error because... Uh, there, there would be um, because it's us. <laughs> yeah, well, that's that's besides the point. But looking at normal, normal humans in in today in writings and even writings in the past, you can actually see uh, where there would be error or anything mm-hmm. in, in that. And, and there's not even inconsistencies. Yeah, the, there there's not. And to sit there and look at it. And yet again, still not knowing what it is, even though there's a, a few words that I'll be talking about here in just a little bit, uh, is still consistent. Uh, it, it, even if you look at the codex in it, uh, it, what you would see is for A and B and, and whatnot. And I, I'm looking forward to diving into this, but we still need to get through the history yeah. history of this. So uh, we can tend to go down rabbit holes all day long. Well, and that's that's fine. Again, you know, no producer, so we do. We will ramble all we want to ramble, and I will just forward all the hate email to you. Uh, I'd go right on ahead. I'll be more than happy to put uh, it on I, there. I'll tell you what we'll, we'll do. We'll just say it goes to a bald one at beyondthewallspodcast.com, <laughs> and that he can handle that since, uh, since he wasn't able to show up tonight. 
At some point, I'm going to be able to talk to you guys about McFarland Murray Chevrolet without attaching some sort of a personal calamity story along with the sponsorship ad that we're running, but apparently now is not that time. The first time I talked to you about them in length, I t told you a story about my gas tank falling off just in the middle of everything, right in the middle of the road. Gas tank just, boom, falls off the vehicle. It was a little bit more dramatic than that. Going into a wedding last Saturday, um, we'll spare you the details of the story, but I end up in an automobile accident that totals my wife's car. So as you can imagine, number one, the thing that I had to deal with was, well, wrecking my wife's car. I was fine, but it did absolutely total the vehicle out. And in the meantime, here we are getting my daughter off to first year of college, doing the freshman orientation thing. Um, three different sets of obligations pulling us three different ways and two vehicles so i make a visit down to my friend billy murray at mcfarland murray chevrolet and say billy need some help can you help me out here here's here's what i'm looking at still in the middle of the insurance process and all of that hassle and and headache that goes along with even the smoothest of insurance situations can be stressful he takes me out shows me a vehicle that he thinks is going to be perfect for the situation i'm in not kidding you, just a little bit later, I am taking it to show my wife. Everything's good. Everything's fantastic. It falls well beneath my price range. Uh, just I cannot say enough about the folks at McFarland Murray Chevrolet. And, yes, it, it would be easy to write this off as, yes, I am personal friends with them, and, yeah, they take care of their own. But I have never heard anyone with any type of different story other than, than something similar to the couple stories that I have with McFarland Murray Chevrolet. I want to encourage you guys. We don't talk a whole lot when we talk about McFarland Murray Chevrolet. We don't talk a whole lot about the current deals they have going on just because it's difficult in podcast format because we understand that some of you don't listen to this within the first few days or even the first few weeks that the episode goes live that there are times that you actually play catch-up and the deals that we, we talk about now may not still be deals then so we don't talk a whole lot about the deals that they have going but i do want to steer you to their website which is mcfarlandmurrayshevrolet.com on there at any point that you sign on you can find out what type of sale they have going on what's the best deal that you can get directly in contact with the salesman with the parts department with the service department you can get in touch with anyone right there via the website if you take if you're like me and you like to do things a little bit more old school from time to time their phone number that you can reach them at you can contact them through the website as well but if you want to just make a straight up phone call 877-272-9861 that gets you in direct contact with them at the local office one thing that i just want to stress to you and and this is not costing them anything extra i do not know a single person who has walked away dissatisfied from the dealership prices are posted clearly on every vehicle so there's not not any guesswork as to how much they're going to start me out at if they're going to start me out high that way they got room to to act like they're doing me a big favor and lowball it they're up front they're transparent. They're as honest as any automobile company that I've ever dealt with in my life. So I encourage you guys, check out the website, McFarland Murray Chevrolet. Give them a call, 877-272-9861, or stop by and see them at 414 East Main Street in Grayson. You won't be disappointed. McFarland Murray Chevrolet. Um, you know, just a little bit of history. Right now, um, there is... In between the the time that we're talking about right at this point and the you know where it is now, there are a whole lot of names that are very foreign to my Eastern Kentucky dialect. 
and I'm not even going to attempt. If you listened to our episode on the Cathar Crusades, at the end of it, you heard us even trying to Peter de Cassonal is is what the pronunciation of it was, and we spent ten minutes. Peter, you know, I mean, we just we well, butchered it. Yes, and please don't don't classify me as the Eastern Kentucky dialect. I'm from West Virginia, so don't you forget it. Yeah, that's an upgrade for sure. Okay, not not, not to oust any of our West Virginia listeners. No, you are wonderful. You are fantastic. Yeah. Thank you. Actually, my family's roots is from West Virginia. So. <laughs> yes, yes, it is. So, but anyhow, moving along, we. Uh, it is at the Rare Book and Manuscripts Library in Yale University. Right. Is where it is now. Um, and they've, they've done a lot of work with it, and we'll get to that. But there is – I want to talk to you about what the book consists of or what it apparently consists of. Because, like I said, we could continue just knocking off stuff, dates with history and names that we can't pronounce that are probably, quite honestly, you, f- you will have no – they're really not going to further – the story or further what we're wanting to accomplish here uh, but here's if you were to be able to sit down um, in, in the binding you know the cover of it is what Yell describes as a limp vellum cover it's not the original cover either no we, no we don't we don't it's old no doubt it is old but we don't know if it is from you know if it's a second edition third edition you know right but it's not original but if you were to open it up you're going to see a lot of strange text you're going to see a lot of strange illustrations, uh, and and they basically, you know, the experts air quotes, right? Because I, it's something you can't understand. I don't know how you have experts on it, but hey, we'll go with it. Uh, divided up into six basic sections. Uh, they have they they base it. You know, the first section is an herbal or botanical botanical section. Right. Uh, it's got drawings of herbs, uh, plants. Some of which look really realistic, and some of which may even be easily identifiable. But there's also a section that just looks like it's straight out of the imagination of of Willy Wonka. That, that's true. But even look at some of the insects of today. You'd look at them and simply go, "Well, that's that's something." Uh, like you said, straight out of Willy Wonka. But back then, it, it was a different time frame. You know, mm-hmm. that's something that they may have found when, you know, it does date back to the European times when when this was written. But they also have a different, um, I, I hate to say atmosphere, but a, a different, uh, different herbalizations. They have different plants. They have different. It's flora a, and fauna. Uh, there, there you go. Yeah. There yeah. you go. Uh, so you know that's. It may look foreign to us, but that may be something that this individual who sat down and wrote it, he, he may have had it right there beside his chair. Yeah. Yeah. That we've never seen or again. Or he may have been smoking it. Uh, well, that's <laughs> that's <laughs> one conspiracy theory. Yes. I'm not going down that road, but yeah. it may may have. Yeah. And, here, and, and it's interesting to note that nearly 50% of the book is this herbal or botanical section. It, right. it makes up the majority of right. the manuscript. Uh, you move on. The next section is an astronomical section. It has illustrations of the sun, the moon, the stars, zodiac symbol, so on and so forth. Uh, you go to a cosmological section. They did a lot of hair back then. Yes. Yeah, and as you can see in the depicted pictures, I mean, you can see uh, skin care, uh, you know, how things... Yeah, herbal essences, uh, Pantene. Uh, uh, <laughs> Good one. I'll give you. I'll okay. give you that. So one. the cosmological. <laughs> so the cosmological section is basically. It's just made up of circular drawings. Right. Basically, and there's even one that 
it, it's nine rings. It, it's nine circles, mm-hmm. and it's actually on a foldout. It is a multi-fold sheet within the manuscript. Okay. It's not just a singular sheet. And he didn't, or he or she, whoever the author was, the illustrator was, they didn't say, okay, we're going to draw two of these on one sheet and then turn it over to the you know the backside, put two of them on there. There was an importance to this being all inclusive on one page right. and all together. What that importance is, we don't know. Um, but to, to this person, it was important. Uh, there's also a so-called biological section, uh, which contains some possibly anatomical drawings with small humans, mostly feminine, mostly yes. women. Yes. Uh, they seem to be populating systems of tubes, maybe that's transporting some liquids. There's some of them that appear to be on clouds. Um, they're, they're mostly nude, and they mostly appear, and I will say appear, appear to be pregnant. That's actually a good point. Never thought of it that way. Yeah. Uh, going back to the to the tubular thing, uh, for our engineer friends that are, are listening to this, kind of let's kind of paint that picture for you. So uh, it's a sophisticated water uh, delivery system. Mm-hmm. Uh, let that kind of sink in. Let's, let's go back to the 1600s. Of how do they deliver water? You know, we have plumbing like that here today, but they didn't have that then. So how did they funnel it in? Right. How did they push it in? Or could this be even more of a symbolic imagery if the women are pregnant, if this is a tubular thing and it's carrying to a new place, could it be representative of birth, symbolic of birth, new life? That's that's also true. And maybe, and there was a lot of belief in which we still have our beliefs between the now and the afterlife, you know, where we came from, where we're going. We like to think of our beliefs as a little bit more sophisticated, a little bit more refined. I don't know if that's fair. I don't, I really don't think so. But I think that because of science, because of understanding and because of education, we have a little bit better of a, uh, of a concept, at least, you know, from a context standpoint of spiritualism right so you know they they looked very much so there was there was a beginning we came from somewhere right there was why we were here and then we went somewhere the beginning and the end of that were both tied to spiritualism so maybe it was symbolic of something new birthing right again we're i feel like we're just as qualified in a lot of ways to make assumptions and and make wild stabs at this thing as anybody else uh, one of the pictures I also wanted to bring up to you as well, if you look, it actually has one of the uh, feminine uh, characters, mm-hmm. I, I and I'm going to use that term kind of loosely there as a character, uh, that is standing at a pinnacle point to where it looks like she was almost pushing uh, something, the water or, or whatever new life, or, or, you know, this also may be a symbolism of uh, pushing new life in, you know, yeah. bringing new life in, yeah. into the world. Yeah, exactly. So that was one of the kind of the things that struck me when, when doing the research for this podcast is it, I, I don't really think that there's a right answer or, or a wrong answer, but that kind of stuck out to me that I went, now, wait a second here. Well, let's look at this. What are trying to climb into the mind? Like you said earlier, I'm an odd ball anyways, but trying to climb into the mind of who did this, what, what was the meaning behind this? Mm-hmm. So that that was something that kind of strung out, struck out to me. So. Yeah, yeah. Well, in the, you know, this is by far. You can, all of these sections are a little bit 
they're they're about 15 degrees off center right basically so they all have their um eccentricities in in certain ways in certain areas to me and i think to most everyone who will look at this book this biological section is the most out there Right. of the entirety of the manuscript. There's none of it that would be considered normal, I don't think, by any means. Right. But this one is is way it, out there. It, it is out there. And Aliens, man. I, I, I don't, Giorgio. I, <laughs> I, don't, I don't think it's necessarily... Well, I don't know. It may be now that we're talking about it. There is it. a theory. Yeah, the, the, there there's a, a theory, theory for everything. Yep. Um, but, you know, even I, I spent years as a clinician. Mm-hmm. You know, that even that still struck out to me that I'm sitting there going... Okay. Um, let's move on. You know, yeah. let, let's let, let's let's dive a little bit further into the text. Mm-hmm. Which, as uh, as Scott Fieldbrook from Astonishing Legends would say, hey, let's drill down on this for a little bit. Yeah. Excellent reference and yes. wonderful shout out. Yeah, great Astonishing Legends. Now, if you are a fan of this type of thing, of any type of legend, um, mystery, things that are unexplained, Astonishing Legends is a fantastic podcast. Yes. All right, moving on. Uh, the next section is what is referred to as the pharmaceutical section. This is named the pharmaceutical section because of the draw. It has drawings of containers uh, next to which various small parts of herbs, you know, leaves, roots, stems, things of that nature, have been aligned. What seems to be in a specific pattern. So it seems that they are developing some type of remedy or some type of treatment for something that right. they're almost kind of giving like a recipe it, exactly like uh, grandma's old uh, uh, herbals that they would pull from you know from the 1800s it was the same kind of thing yeah. you had to do this but it was actually drawn out mm-hmm. and written out to show the steps of what you need to do it in yeah well it's everything goes back to lord of the rings for me you know like when when frodo is stabbed on weathertop with the morgul blade you know aragorn this strider is trying to slow down and he looks at sam and he goes sam do you know ephalas and he's like ephalas that's the that's a weed right king's fork that's a weed he's like yeah he's like go get some because that'll slow down the poison yeah and and i mean that's kind of what it reminds me of and if you could have seen the eye roll that i just got <laughs> from mr walker over here when i began to bring up a lord of the rings reference so. but anyhow that's where my mind goes no 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 eye roll there it, it was just funny because I, I should have popped in uh from big bank there here we go yeah here we Talking go about sheldon cooper <laughs> yeah. here we go um and then lastly the sixth section uh, not the sixth sense, but the sixth section uh, is a recipe section, which contains over 300 short paragraphs, each accompanied by a drawing of a star in the margin. Now, this is the only section of the book that is not illustrated. Right. There is no illustrations other than, and, and the stars almost look like bullet points. Mm-hmm. To me, what this looks like is a reference section yes. that we would put in ours. Yes. But, I mean, it, it, it's different and it's interesting, even down to the detail that the stars aren't the same right like there are different it seems like the stars are coded yeah color coded you know based on based on uh the importance Mm -hmm. and you know to go along with the illustrations the it seems that the illustrations were done first Mm -hmm. i mean we can almost 100 percent settle on that because the text often wraps around the illustration right so what they've done is they've gone in they've illustrated it then they've then they've done the text and the text is written just as any type of you know it's written from top to bottom it goes left to right, right. and but now there's no ruling 
or you know anything that would keep them online. So a, a lot of the lines have a wave to them, especially when they get close to the illustration. Is like, and this again is one of those that adds some credence to me that there is a little bit of validity to that this is more than just an elaborate hoax because if it's an elaborate hoax and you get to the illustrations and you're running out of room then you're going okay I can just stop here and begin the next line but there are are sections and parts of it to where they actually the text have to wrap around the right. illustration like this is this is part of this thought this is part of this train of thought and it has to I have to complete it right. I have to finish it very I'm going to use the word methodical Mm-hmm. I, that's what I honestly believe when when reading through this and looking through the pictures and, and I'm currently looking at one right now at the uh, at the bullet points it it is it is methodical and it reminds me a lot of looking at some of the old Hebrew text even though they would go from right to left but it it was still had that wavy curve and it still wasn't perfectly straight but you can yet again see that it was written from left to right mm-hmm. in this yeah so. and the uh, you know talking about the Hebrew text the interesting part and, and one of the things that uh, maybe maybe is just adding to the dilemma of trying to translate this manuscript is with the Hebrew text it as long as you had the first letter Mm-hmm. And the last letter right in the right place. It didn't matter where all the other letters or words were in that sentence. It, so sentence structure was not important. Now to us, sentence structure is everything. Right. It is everything. But back then it was just like, okay, you get the first one and the last one right. It doesn't matter what you do with the rest of them. Right. So if that's part of this too, then you've got a new added wrinkle and an added dimension. Uh, something to point out, too, if you start looking through everything and, and doing the research in it as well, there's no obvious punctu- punctuation. No, not at all. No, not one Which, again, bit. would lend... That's Hebrew. Yeah. That, that's that's similar to Hebrew. These are just a few few of the bullet points that we were... We're just trying to reference so we can paint this picture for you. So, you, so that way, before, as you're driving down the road listening to this podcast... Uh, Beyond the Walls podcast, so you know, nice little shout out there to remind you of what you're listening to. Just in to. case you forgot, yeah, just in case you the forgot the two yahoos that you're listening to. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, just just looking at it, the, no obvious punctuation, as, as like we were we were saying, um, ragged right margins and and paragraph divisions, and sometimes with stars in the left margin, just like what we were talking about. Uh, to put labels on what this is, but yet again, we can't dive into it because we don't have what I'd like to also call the code key, the key code. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, you know, to decipher this. Yeah. Well, and if you if you look at, you go back to this time period, 14th, 15th century medieval manuscripts. Right. When you look at this and you look at how they're made, they there were multiple hands right. in making this. You would have a parchment maker you would have an illustrator. Uh, and one of the things about the illustration is almost, they call them almost childlike yeah. in the Voynich manuscript because they're not of the highest quality. And what, what you'll find if you dig into this, and, and really we don't need to go into it, but this is a mid-level quality manuscript. It's right. not on the high end. It's not on the low end. It's a just a right in the middle of the road quality-wise, all the way from the ink to the illustration. A lot of people refer to the illustration quality as childlike, that it's not probably not done by a professional 
right. illustrator. Not of somebody point. of high born. Right, right, exactly. Or someone who did it as trade. Right. That if this was just something that old, old dude was just there. He was doing some scribbles. He's like, hey, this turned out pretty good. I want to write some kind of crazy stuff around it. Let's see what happens. Hey, y'all, watch this. Hold my beer, you know? <laughs> like, that's basically and lo- what's happening. And look, you know, 400 years later, we're, here we still, are, yeah, we're sitting here talking, talking about, about it. it. Right. Um, but, you know, as you go back, one of the things, as you're looking at this time, this Renaissance era, with the manuscripts and you begin to look at them and look at the Voynich manuscript. It's just so frustrating to so many people because there's just no similarities. I mean, there are similarities, but there's no similarities of significance right? in that time period. There's a couple of them though, that I would like to point out and, and, and bear with me here. This is, this could get a little, it's not going to be monotone, but it could get a little robotic, but I'm just going to kind of read this to you. Um, potentially of the greatest interest is the comparison between the characters in the Voynich manuscript and the symbols found in early Renaissance cipher systems. There are a few, like D'Imperio, that shows example from a cipher of Parma, which is dated 1379, a Venetian cipher in 1411, and a code of Urbino in 1440. Now, while these do not show exactly the same characters as the Voynich manuscript, there are some striking similarities and the author of the manuscript may have well been inspired by these or similar examples. So, you know, and we'll put some pictures of all of these because we've got pictures of, of all of these illustrations. But they're basically saying is like, listen, we can't find that that code word or that keyword or that right. one thing that's going to help us to break this thing and, and get us settled on this. But what we have found that, again, goes back to the validity and kind of undergirding the the, the carbon dating time period is that there are some similarities of some other 14th 15th century renaissance medieval manuscripts that there's enough similarities that we can say maybe they were inspired by this and and there was actually one little piece that i I researched too that uh, and i want to read this as part of uh, my show notes is uh, uh characters with latin characters yeah you know the in the similarities um it kind of puts you let me kind of paint that picture for you uh for for my computer geeks it's the ibm punch cards that you have you know if you have one symbol that is a then you have another symbol that is b and and that's what they are using all the way through it so for for my computer my computer fans out there you, you would you would get that reference just to kind of see but uh as you were saying absolutely let's now take a little bit of a physical look at the manuscript itself just to give again we're going to have pictures which are going to be extremely helpful but let's also give a little bit of of depth and width and height and things like that to the pictures that they're going to be able to have access to uh, the the Voynich manuscript measures 225 by 160 millimeters you want me to translate that to American? <laughs> yes okay. I know the metric system is wonderful but kind of kind of go a little bit more in depth than that one. all right 225 millimeters means it's 8.8 inches. 160 millimeters, 6.7 inches. So we basically have a, you know, little little bit shorter than nine inch by six and a half inches. Right. Is basically. Then it's the thickness of it is about five centimeters, or two inches thick. Right. So now the reproductions of it, um, you know, Yale has done some some very high quality reproductions of it. They've made it bigger. Right. Because that's what we do here. 
we make things bigger because bigger is better, right? Right. And actually, a little side note for you, if you are looking in the Yale contacts, it's actually going to be MS408. 408, yep. 408. It is not known as the Voynich Manuscript at Yale. No, 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 no. MS408. So if you're ever in Yale, you can look it up. Voynich Manuscripts, MS. MS408. Right. In stereo. Ah, yeah. Yeah. All right, this has a parchment cover, and the cover is plain. It has no indication of origin, whether it be year, title, author, none of that. The book consists of 102 folios. They are speculating that it originally had 116, so they're thinking that probably 14 of them are missing. Right. Uh, they're organized. It's organized into 18 gatherings, or what we would basically refer to as chapters. Right. So it's got 18 chapters, and if if you look at, again, what they're speculating is the original, they're figuring that there were 20 chapters. Right. So they're thinking that two of them are completely missing. I, I just I think that that... You know, it is fascinating. Again, when we start to take a look at the cover of it, you know, they believe that it was done in the 18th, 19th, you know, probably more the 18th century, maybe into the 19th century, probably done in Rome uh, while it was making its way through the, uh, you know, European, you know, continent of Europe there as it was making its pilgrimage through there because there's a lot of um, manuscripts, a lot of books, a lot of things that were written 18th, 19th century Rome that were done in this exact same type of binding and cover it actually states 170,000 characters which is about 35,000 groups of varying length uh, usually referred to as words or or word tokens uh, for our deep enthusiasts for for history and and wordsmithing as well yes yeah and to go a little bit deeper with the uh, cover and the date uh, this is all being done by the Yale um, rare books and manuscript library uh, again, they call it a, a limp vellum cover that they can date back to the 18th, 19th century. Uh, they tell, you know, again, we've kind of covered this, but just to make sure we're we're getting it accurate or as accurate as you can with the Voynich manuscript, tells us that the cover's not original to the manuscript. The exchange, what they feel like is done, we talked about the 18th, 19th century in Rome. They feel like the exchange of the cover of the manuscript was done by the Jesuits in Rome because very similar covers are found on numerous manuscripts were, that were kept in the same Jesuit library in Rome. Right. The present cover is made of goat skin, uh, as determined by a 2014 test done by Jesse Meyer, who is a professional parchment maker. Okay. Um, while the cover is described as a limp cover, this is not what it was made to be. It used to be stiffened by filling materials. So basically, it's a difference between a paperback and a hardback book today. If, if any of you even still pick up a book that actually has pages and a cover instead of a digital download or an audio book, which we love, by the way, because we are an audio <laughs> media <download>. ourselves. You <laughs> know, so continue to do that, please, because we have no print material. <laughs> but, yeah, but basically uh, a hardcover you know, is, is the non-flexible material. Right. Um, paperback is off, you know, obviously flexible. But what they're saying is that it, while it's a limp cover now, that's not what it was because it had fillers at some point that stiffened it that just over time have eroded and caused it to be more uh, pliable, basically. Right. The cover also shows remnants of paper paste downs that have been removed. Uh, the paste downs and the filling materials were most probably removed by Voynich himself. I have no idea how they arrived at that, but that's what they arrived at. And that's the reason why they get paid the big bucks. That's right. That's right. 
So now let's take a look at the origin. Uh, you know, we've we've talked a little bit. Um, you know, the the materials of this. It was made of calf skin. Right. Uh, again, established in the 2014 test uh, by protein analysis. I just find this kind of stuff fascinating, how they can arrive at at these things and and the various means and the ways that they use at right. arriving at at such thing. Uh, the stitching of the binding is old. I'm, I'm glad to know that. No. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The stitching is old, but it has not been established as to if it's original to the manuscript or not. Uh, they can tell that from insect holes at the beginning of the manuscript and insect holes at the end of the manuscript that um, the original covers was probably, or the binding at least, were made of wood. Right. Because of the insects getting in, you know, digging through, burrowing through the wood and into the first few pages and digging through at the end and the, the last few pages of it. There's right. also some discoloration on the edges of the first and the end again, uh, you know, towards the, the beginning and the end of the manuscript, uh, which would again suggest that the wooden, bi wooden binding was covered with tan leather right. that bled onto the, the, the parchment of the manuscript itself. So in some of the research that I've done, uh, you can look to see uh, some different things. Uh, you can see some uh, things that says Latin scripts and, and character uh, characteristics of unknown language and letters resembling European alphabet to the late 14th and 15th century. Uh, but it, it still doesn't make sense. But however, one, one piece did did set me out it was a um it was a phrase that was actually written in german um a, a high german phrase for a widow's share so that made me start to think hey well if you have uh, these depictions of uh, multiple feminine characters mm -hmm. if you were looking at this back then when uh, the the husbands would go off to war and they were considered widowed the widowers or or the soldiers wives would uh, stay together uh, you know studying german actually through high school and college a little useless fact for you for the for the day in in, in my education uh, to see this phrase actually written amongst uh, english uh, English-esque, uh, different different wordings, whatnot, to see this in the margins of it, it is absolutely fascinating because now that starts to put things more into context of maybe that's the reason why they had multiple feminine characters in this, uh, looking at it, because now you know that you've got, uh, for lack of better words, tribe uh, of, of female characters that... Uh, that was very predominant, especially in wartime, especially through that uh, 14th, 15th century of, of of gatherers, because there was war constantly, mm -hmm. and, and the men were always off at war. So that kind of puts things in perspective. Maybe the author was looking at it from uh, an, an outside source of looking to see, hey, we, we have these groups here, um, you know, group of widowers. Mm -hmm. uh, wid widows, sorry, not right. widowers, widows uh, that were coming together. Yeah. Well, that that leads us to a place I think we're going to just put a bow. We're, we're going to close this first episode with this and you bringing in a little bit of the German aspect of it. I, I want to take, you know, we're going to do a theories uh, and, and we're going to get deeper than theories in the next episode, but that's predominantly what it's going to be is some of the speculation, some of the theories, and we'll be presenting you with some more facts 
than what we presented you here in the theories episode just because it, we're going to look at the facts that these people are basing these theories on right. but uh, you know there have been so many people who have had proposed theories um, you know as to the manuscript its origin who wrote it uh, but they you know they talk about suggestions the main themes that you'll see is people trying to establish the origin of right. where it came from then they begin to try to unpack the authorship of it but I, I want to close this out with with a few of the bullet points here of just some of the theories and the speculations and what some people have arrived at as far as the origin of it. Erwin Panofsky, who is an art historian, said in 1932, quote, It was written in the southwestern corner of Europe, Spain, Portugal, Catalonia, or Provence, but most probably in Spain. Right. End quote. So that was his take. Richard Salomon, scholar of medieval history, was quoted in 1936 by Anne Neal, quote, he thinks it may be German. You will recall that Dr. Panofsky told me something of that when I ran across him in the Morgan Library in 1934, but that he is not yet absolutely certain of this, end quote, going back to that German tie that you had right. there. Um, in 1937, De Ricci said, quote, the country of origin seems to be some part of Central Europe, end quote. A manager of the Vatican Library suggested in 1953, quote, the Voynich manuscript is certainly not by Bacon. They're referring to Roger Bacon, Bacon here, and yeah. we'll get to him in, in the theories episode. He continues to say it originates from the late 16th or early 17th century, most probably from Czechoslovakia or Poland, end quote. Panofsky again in 1954, so this is a 22-year gap, so people have dedicated many years to right. the study and trying to figure this thing out. But in 1954, where he was answering the question where and when the manuscript was written, he responded by saying is, quote, my guess is that the manuscript was produced in Germany, end quote. So in 22 years, it had gone from Spain, Portugal, Catalonia, Providence, you know, province, but most probably Spain, to now in Germany. But what we are staying consistency on is that it is staying in European-esque Yes, in that places. Central Europe yes. type area. Yeah, and that's in the next one. In the Catalog of Medieval and Renaissance Manuscripts in the Rare Book and Manuscript Library at Yale University, they believe that it is written in Central Europe. Sergio Torricelli, expert in the history of medicine and medieval herbals, says, quote, it was in France for a while. The month names on the Zodiac diagrams are in French, in a French handwriting. The book itself comes from Italy. Wow. End quote. In uh, 1976, James Child of NSA, and I want to say that again, NSA, National Security Agency here in America, mm -hmm. uh, said it was unknown to North uh, Germanic dialect. This is now the NSA looking into this in the uh, mid-70s, uh, saying that, yes, this is still Germanic. And when you absolutely dive into this, and it, it is still saying all over the place, but yet so many people, that's what we've got to look at. We've got so many people looking at this, trying to decipher it, and, and we'll go into that into the theories uh, episode, like you said, here in a little bit. Some wonderful things that that you're seeing, but yet again, it, it's it's all still staying the same. 
right there in Europe, nothing nothing seems to be changing that. The theories can change all at once, but when it still comes down to the what I call the brass tacks, that's what it is. It's staying right there, same time period, going that way. Even looking at the zodiac symbols, even looking at the dialect itself, and, and yet again, I was I've been very blessed to study German and, and different languages. Um, I can actually speak three different languages, not including Klingon. So that's. And you rolled your eyes at me when I did the Lord of the Rings reference. Well, yeah. Sometimes I seriously question who I surround myself with, folks. But anyhow, go on. Go on. <laughs> this is actually deep intellectual stuff. Please take the time to look at the show notes and the time and the process that we use to dive into this. But we're wrapping this all up, like you said, in a bow and handing it to you just so you can see this. You know, questions and answers and whatnot. Uh, you know, you're able to research this. We're giving you something tangible to look at, to make your own mm-hmm. uh, uh, ideas. Yeah, develop your own theories, your own hypothesis. Exactly. Yeah. yeah, and to just give you a little bit of an idea as to the type of people that this this captivates. Dan Brown, uh, Da Vinci Code. Absolutely. Um, so he, you know, Dan Brown is someone who. A lot of people would say borders on the fringe, uh, pseudo history, um, you know, different things, taking historical things and just fictionalizing them and just somewhat um, mistreating them in some people's fashion. I enjoy reading his materials. Um, I, I just, of course, I'm I'm out there with cons- conspiracies and things like that. So, no. yeah, yeah, I know it's hard to believe, but here's a Dan Brown quote. Quote. I have always been captivated by the Voynich Manuscript. Nothing captures my attention quite like this mysterious 15th century encrypted codex that still to this day baffles cryptologists, linguists, and historians. Oh, the power that was created in this manuscript. End quote. We'd like to say thank you to the Commercial Bank of Grayson and McFarland Murray Chevrolet for helping to make this episode a reality. I'd like to say also a special thank you to Michael Walker for joining us in studio this evening for this episode one of the Voynich Manuscript. But most importantly, we'd like to say thank you to you, our listeners. Without you, this is impossible. We appreciate you so much. Like us, review us, tell a friend, tell a family member, tell somebody you don't like. Just tell somebody. Beyond the Walls podcast.